The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time tonight. We've been looking at this particular set of teachings from the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis, or the Ten Beautiful Qualities of the Heart. And these are qualities, I mean, as the tradition explains it, these are the qualities that an awakened or free, wise human being would naturally have cultivated to support their awakening, their wisdom or their kindness. So the qualities, you know, it's a list that we would have come up with something close to ourselves. So there's generosity and there's renunciation and there's wisdom and there's this commitment to non-harming and there's resoluteness and equanimity and loving kindness and resoluteness. Did I say that already? Truthfulness and patience and energy, which is what we're talking about now. So we're kind of in the middle of the list. Energy, I think, is number five, something like that. And now I think tonight's the fourth week I've been talking about effort, our energy. And, you know, it's pretty clear to any of us how central understanding energy is to just functioning as a human being. We have to find energy to show up and respond and do what needs to be done in our lives. And isn't it, I mean, it's so often where we're complaining about not having enough energy or maybe having too much energy how hard it is to get out of bed or how hard it is to do the next thing on our to-do list, make that call that we've been putting off, wash the dishes that we've been putting off, you know, fix our life, start to exercise, change our diet, shut off the computer. (laughs) So it's, it's, and there's been some interesting studies just about how challenging it is to change habits in the mind, to that launching energy. In a way, there's, just to help us break it down, there's two categories of effort. You know, there's the launching kind of effort when we're sort of following our habit energy, doing what we've always done, and we, to some degree, recognize the importance of changing. And so there's the initiating or launching energy to sort of change course. And then once we've changed course, then there's the persisting energy, like persisting in doing what we see seems to be working, seems to be more skillful, sticking with it or being steadfast, not losing sight of what we're finding useful. One of the images the Buddha uses that I find really helpful is uh, this image of feeding and starving. It's usually how it's translated. And this is used both for the wholesome and for the unwholesome qualities. And um, generally, the Buddha, you know, in terms of suggesting how we view or how we organize the world is in terms of cause and effect. So, in terms of becoming, 
the person we want to become and not becoming the person we don't want to become or transforming the heart in a good, positive, happy direction, not in a negative, heavy, contracted direction. It comes down to, in this moment, in any moment, what is the mind through its attitude, through what the mind is paying attention to, what is the mind feeding and what is it starving? You know, what's getting set in motion, what isn't getting set in motion? That's what's really relevant. Because in a way, if I have a lot of anger showing up, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of neediness, a lot of, oh, poor me, you know, any of these bubbles, these habit energies that we all have to some degree, some of them are stronger in us, you know, and others may be stronger than other people, but we have these particular negative patterns, all of us, each of us, that can arise, can get triggered. And when they get triggered, when they arise, it's already too late to wish to be the person that didn't have that tendency, right? It's already there, that tendency to be needy, to be defensive, to be in that fantasy. If only, then I'd be happy, then I'd be fine. So, but what we can do is right then and there, we can get interested in, well, what is the mind paying attention to? How is the mind paying attention? And what is that feeding? And what is that starving? Given how my mind is relating, what's getting set in motion? Who am I becoming? Literally, what sort of future is getting set in motion right now? Is that the kind of heart, the kind of mind I want to inhabit or be in? in the future, to be living out of in the future. It's <clears throat> This way of thinking is exactly opposite of any sense of helplessness. Right? And, and the way the Buddha taught, it was basically, that was his whole point. This nihilistic sense that it doesn't matter or there's nothing we can do or we're just swept, around, swept along by forces too big to do anything about. You know, we're in such an erotic culture, what can we do? I might as well eke out as much pleasure as I can until it all ends, or something nihilistic like that. So, the thing the Buddha kept pointing to, and we want to begin to check it out and notice in our own life, this place where it's like, where things can actually change. And the amazing thing is how, how powerful this place is, how the mind is relating. We spend so much time lamenting what's arising, like being sick. Oh, I can't believe I'm sick. Or I'm so happy I feel good. You know, so we, we take so personally the particulars of the moment, the circumstances of the moment, the conditions of the moment. Whereas the most important thing isn't like what's showing up because what's showing up isn't really our business. Like how it is for me, the particular health I have right now or the particular way you're treating me right now and you like me or you don't like me, you're insulting me, you're praising me. That is the result of so many causes and conditions. It's not really personal. But the one thing that is relevant 
is what is my mind doing with all those circumstances? What is it among all of those things that are happening right now? What is the mind choosing to pay attention to and with what attitude? Because it it uh, sets in motion something. I mean, one way to summarize what the Buddha taught is it really matters what you pay attention to and with what view or with what attitude. It really matters. So if we want to, and this is to be checked out, don't just believe it. It doesn't really help to believe it. What helps is to check it out and then live according to what you find out when you check it out. Does it matter in this moment and any moment what the mind pays attention to? We don't realize how much of our reality as a human being is literally constructed by my habits of what I pay attention to and how I pay attention with what attitude. So last week I talked about making the effort to prevent unwholesome states from getting established in the mind. And so this teaching on feeding and starving is really relevant. If I'm careless, then negative states can get established in my mind. You know, somebody does something irritating. We can't help that. I can't help people around me from doing irritating things, things that I find irritating. It's not, what makes it irritating isn't what they're doing. It's what I define it as, right? I define, that's irritating, you know, what you're doing. And so that happens. Then once that's happening, I can keep attending to that particular perception that that person's doing an irritating thing. And I can pay attention to it as if they're doing it on purpose to irritate me. Right? And there will be some real consequences if my mind keeps attending to the experience in that way. Right? Like I'll get really irritated. And then the unpleasantness of the irritation itself will propel the mind back to that same perception, seeing the same thing. Yeah, why is this person doing that thing? And then on and on like that. We, the mind literally sets in motion a hell realm for itself. But we don't see it that way. We see that the hell realm came because this person is so disrespectful that they're, sort of be pointing at you. <laughs> You're doing fine. <laughs> Somebody, theoretically, is doing something. But I'm not going to say who it is. <laughs> That's irritating me. (laughs) And it just builds and builds and builds. But there are many ways for this mind, like many objects of experience that I could be paying attention to. Like even with that same person, I could be noticing that's a fragile, tender human being being swept along by their habit energy too just like this fragile, tender human being being swept along by his habit energy, his conditioning, right? Now, if I sustain that perception, something different would be set in motion. Or I could just avert my attention and pay attention to 
kids playing over here or, you know, the nice sweater somebody's wearing over there. And then a different reality would get set in motion. So, literally, different realities get set in motion based on what my mind pays attention to and how it pays attention to it. You know, I could be irritated by one person and then avert my attention, but because my mind is already sort of in the mode of being irritated, I might, in this next thing I'm looking at, find something else to get irritated, right? So it matters not just what we pay attention to, but how we're paying attention. And the more we understand that, the more we understand how much power. It's an empowering teaching to notice. On, on the one hand, it might feel a little overwhelming, like, oh my God, I'm, we, don't, we maybe don't want to be responsible for our happiness. It's like convenient to blame our unhappiness or whatever, or happiness, unhappiness on other people. I'm happy because you, you're not irritating me, you know, or I'm unhappy because you are irritating me. So it can be a little challenging to take responsibility that actually our happiness and unhappiness is being constructed right here in the mind, in the heart, dependent on among all the different perceptions that our minds can have right now and all the different ways, attitudes our minds can have right now, how, what is my mind paying attention to and how is it paying attention? Because it could be allowing the mind to descend into a really negative, contracted, unwholesome state like hatred or just blaming, complaining. You know, sometimes we go to the news, I don't know about you, but, you know, and we're just interested in finding something provocative. Like if I I get a difficult email that's sort of provoking some anger or irritation in me, you know, it's interesting how, one, it's an unpleasant feeling, so I want distraction. But I'll go to the news, but I'll look for an article that allows that anger, irritation to play itself out a little bit more. You know, I'm not really getting an escape. So we think I'm averting, you know, oh, I don't want to deal with this. But we end up dealing with it anyway, by, but totally not in a direct way. In a way that reinforces that way of relating, like with irritation or with the blaming mind or with self-righteousness or with a mind that finds the present moment hard to bear and rationalizes that. You know, we construct the sense of the whole world on our shoulders. Nobody's doing their share but me. It isn't fair, right? We keep constructing that reality. And then we, the mind gets dependent on that being real. So it it's like gets imprisoned by doing that over and over and over again. And so much so that it's not easy to construct a different reality after a while. We get trapped by our habits. So the four efforts or the four exertions the Buddha talks about, I mentioned this last week, but we'll spend one more week talking about these four. Last week we talked about making the effort to refrain or to prevent the mind 
from getting caught in negative states. So that means there's enough wisdom based on our actual experience, like I've been, been there, done that, so when we start to do that again, the mind goes, honey, don't do that. You know what happens when you do that. That's that voice of self-respect. The Buddha makes a big deal out of this quality. Sometimes in the tradition it's translated as a wholesome, wholesome remorse and a wholesome concern or wholesome self-respect. Like, I care enough about this life that I don't want you to do that again. Because when you've done that, you end up in a hole. You end up in a contracted state. And it takes a while to disengage, to you know, free up the mind and heart and body after spending two days complaining or seeking revenge or fantasizing about what you want. Have you ever noticed how your mind is after even spending a half an hour looking at a catalog? It's good to contemplate because we'll be getting a lot of catalogs in the next few weeks. And it's just amazing, you know, every item you look at, the mind has to decide, do I want it or I don't want it? And that's stressful to know, to have to figure out whether you want it. Will will it make me happy? That means your mind has to construct a sense of self and then it has to imagine that self with it, what size, what color, you know, and whether that vision that we've just constructed, right, it's just an idea of the mind's construction, constructed, like, is that a happy vision? Like, what's the flavor of that vision? Like, do I want to grasp it or not? Right? Oh, yeah. Okay, I want it. But the whole process is stressful. And you'll notice when you put it down, the mind feels a little discombobulated, like just wigged out from that 20 minutes or 30 minutes of speculating different realities of having that, having this, having, you know, and whether I like that constructed idea of me with that thing. And it's such a relief to put it down and to be the one who doesn't, you know, need to have, like, have you noticed what it feels like to, like when you don't do that and you just, the catalog goes from the mail right into the recycling? (laughs) Like, there's the, the impulse but then there's the wisdom of restraint. You know, the odds of finding something I actually need that will actually make me happy, the probability of that is nowhere close to the stress of having to look through it. So I'm going to let it go. That's the, that is the wisdom of this first kind of effort of restraint or preventing. It's like the same thing where we know there's nothing on the TV or we know there's nothing interesting in the magazine, so why look? Just in the one in a thousand chance that there's something good, because we've already looked or we already know. Or all kinds of things, like somebody's having a party, and we've been to their parties before, right? And so, but this could be different. But it probably won't, right? So that restraint, or getting into politics with your parent, right? Or somebody who has a different political views than you. It's like we can prevent ourselves from doing that because we know what that leads to. There's so much freedom in restraint. We all do this already, but now that 
do we do it, are we consciously aware of how liberating it can be to keep the mind from doing things it doesn't really need to do, that don't really liberate or free up the heart and mind? The second effort is the effort we make to abandon. So once the mind's already gotten entrenched in some negative way of being, negative way of relating, like obsessing with hatred or revenge or irritation or, you know, never should have done this, you know, or spinning in doubt. So there's all kinds of holes we can fall into, habits of mind we fall into. So what do we do? What kind of effort is required to abandon that. And now next week we'll talk about developing the wholesome and maintaining. So that rounds off the four efforts. Preventing unwholesome states from getting established. Abandoning unwholesome states once they're already established in the mind. Developing wholesome states and maintaining wholesome states, sustaining them. So let's take 15 minutes or so. I'll talk and then open it up for discussion about this abandoning. And we'll use this image I mentioned earlier about feeding and starving. Because once we're, like I said, it's not so easy. Once we've got some momentum in some negative state, and as I'm talking, you should bring to mind one of the common holes that you fall into. Like when you get caught up in a negative state, maybe for some of you it's really this depressive, helpless, it isn't worth it, and feeling really heavy, and lethargic with that. So maybe that's kind of the flavor of one of the holes, one of the traps that your mind gets in. Maybe for some of you, some of the others here in the room, it's getting kind of in a whipped up state, frenetic, uh, flitting about, never really landing, always having to do the next thing, never really connecting, being superficial, always thinking something great is you know, around the next corner, so you're always looking for the next hit, next exciting thing, the next juicy thing, pleasant thing. And you know, there's an infinite variety of obsessive complexes we human beings can fall into or get trapped in. So bring one of them to mind, and then, and then start reflecting. So, and I'll mention what the Buddha, how the Buddha thinks about this, but how, what are the things that feed, like what does the mind need to do to sustain being in that obsessive state, that negative, contracted, obsessive state? What does the mind, what way of thinking, what perception does the mind need to hold on to? It's like when I'm having an argument or a discussion with my wife, you know, about my unmet need <laughs> or something like that. You know, it's like what attitude to to feel bad and negative and needy and angry and all the different sort of flavors of that. What idea, perception of her do I need to hold in my mind in order to sustain that very unpleasant, unwholesome state right and so you can bring to mind like in your own relationships to your bosses your partners your friends because you know in moments at least they're difficult so when they're difficult what are we holding in mind like 
um, you know, like one of the things I'll notice is like that person doesn't care enough to really like see who I am. <laughs> you know, like to really show up and care. And then, and then uh, it's like that that sort of charges that perception comes with an emotional charge, right? It reveals some pain. And then the pain, like, well, I'm feeling this pain because of that. And that's that cycle I was saying. So we really need to get, like, what's feeding the drama? What's feeding, feeding the story? And then, then we know how to starve it. Like, don't do that. Now, here's what the Buddha says about not doing that. It's kind of interesting. So the first tactic is just to know, if you can be mindfully aware that can break the cycle. Like just to see how destructive, how self-torturing that cycle is can pop it in just a moment. But if the mindfulness isn't strong enough, then we might need a slightly more invasive, intense intervention-like to substitute something into the mind because it's got some momentum. And the Buddha uses the image of knocking out a rotten peg by pushing in a, a new peg, wooden peg. You know, you pound in a peg and before the days of nails, right? And the new peg would push out the old peg. So you insert something into the mind like you're, you're obsessing, you know, and you have some little thread, right? You're caught, but there's a little thread of wisdom that understands this obsessive, pattern needs to be abandoned. It's not helping, right? And so there's enough that enough wisdom to be willing to intervene. So I pull out a move, a dharma move, right? A practice move. I care about how unpleasant this is. So I'm really aversive or have a lot of fear or angry, but instead of spinning with it, I realize this is this really hurts. And I care about that this hurts. So loving kindness or compassion is different than that obsessing with, you know, why is this person this way? Or it's not fair. Or how come nobody cares? I care about this pain. Or you could just have loving kindness for another being. Not the one that's bothering you, but just somebody else. Or even your cat doesn't really matter because a mind that's reflecting on, you know, uh, relating with loving kindness can't be angry. The anger and kindness and compassion can't coexist in the same mind in the same moment. I mean, you can go back and forth, but if you can establish your mind one way or another, any way that works, right, be totally pragmatic about this and loving kindness then you won't be able to sustain the anger or the irritation. You can't have both going on in the same mind. So this is called substitution, where you're inserting, you're aiming your mind in a different direction. If that doesn't work, an even more invasive intervention, invasive or, you know, takes a little bit more psychic energy, but it's better than just stewing in the aversion, is to reflect on 
what's getting set in motion, as I mentioned. Well, if I just sit here, you know, complaining about my friend or complaining in my mind about my boss or about my partner or about my mom or about my dad or about my dog, like, then I'm going to be the one, you know, the old hateful me. I'm going to be the one that nobody wants to be around, including myself, right? I'm just going to be this angry old man. Was that who I want to be? Because this is what's getting set in motion. The Buddha says it's, the image he uses, it's like noticing you have a necklace of rotting flesh around your neck. Like, yuck. You know, what am I doing? Why would I be inhabiting and reinforcing this kind of mind? So it's literally using a wholesome kind of disgust. Like like I mentioned, it's a sense of self-respect. Like, I don't have to live this way. What's that line from, is it Rumi? Um, you know, staying in a house of fear, I'd like to see you with better accommodations. It's one of those famous lines from one of his poems. It's like, if we see ourselves living inside of fear, now it takes a little wisdom. You can't do any of these moves, these practice moves, without some thread of wisdom in the mind that understands, don't, honey, don't continue stewing. It's not going to help. So the first is just to be mindful. The second is to substitute basically the opposite state. So if you're caught up in greed or lust, the opposite would be seeing the imperfection. So no matter what it is you're lusting or wanting after, if you realize that it's impermanent, that its luster will only last for a while, you know, it won't be long before the cell phone is obsolete. You know, and there will be the newer, shinier one. Or whatever it is. Seeing that the fragility of like whatever is entrancing the mind, that like we've had a lot of glittery things. We've gotten a lot of those things. And it's nice for a while. And then it's, it ultimately doesn't keep us happy. So bringing that to mind, is what you might do with greed, as opposed to aversion, you bring the kindness in. The second is to reflect on what's getting set in motion. So you're basically tracing out into the future, like, if I obsess like this, then what kind of heart or mind will I be inhabiting in the future? Well, the one that's really good at obsessing like this, because that's what I'm practicing. And to be appropriately frightened by that prospect. I do not want to be that angry old man that just stews and complains and is embittered and hates politicians and thinks the world is going to hell and, right? Does anybody want to be that person? No. And then the third is, if that, if the first three don't work, then we just ignore, right? We do anything. Like, let's, you call a friend and you go see a movie because You've been spending the whole day obsessing in an unproductive, negative way. So you've got to break the cycle one way or another. Whatever works. Right? So this is, you could call it ignoring. Like do something different with your attention so that it doesn't keep going back to the same perceptions, the same attitude, reinforcing 
the same quality of mind setting a future in, in motion that you don't want to have to inhabit. So whatever you can do to change it up. Sometimes it's like you have to leave the room. You can't be in that situation because it will keep triggering it. So you have to change the scenery. And then the third, I mean the fourth then, so we, first it's not even part of the list, just be mindful with wisdom. But assuming that doesn't work, then we have five strategies. So substitution, bringing in the opposite, seeing, basically being disgusted by what's getting set in motion, being frightened, appropriately frightened by what's getting set in motion. And that wholesome fear inspires uh, letting go. I mean, like, when we realize we're doing something harmful, we're eating something, and then we realize what it is, like, we see the expiration date, or, <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, and we just, like, we just reflexively spit it out, like, oh my God, this is not, you know, there's, this got tainted or something. So that's that second move. Then the third is to ignore it, the fourth is, instead of tracing out into the future, we trace back. Like, why is my mind obsessing like this? And we look at, like, we'll keep taking a step back. Oh, yeah, there's this. Well, where did that come from? Oh, there's this. So we're investigating it. So we're using the process of investigation. This is when we're so addicted, so obsessed, we can't do something that, like, allows us to drop it. So we're still obsessing, but now at least we're more productively obsessing with it. We're like analyzing it with some integrity. Okay, how did this come to be? Oh yeah, there was that. She did that. She said this to me. Okay. So what happened? Where did, where did that reaction, like why do I, and you just keep tracing it back to the, you know, the frightened little boy wants his mom <laughs> or you know wants somebody to save me or whatever you know wants to be back in that safe little space that never really existed anyway doesn't want to be a grown up <laughs> doesn't want to have responsibilities or whatever it is but we get back to that more existential anxiety or uncertainty or yucky feeling but at least it's honest right now there's a shadow to each of these interventions, right? That itself can be its own endless obsession, like to try to figure something out. But it's better than just spinning in unproductive ways. And the last, the grossest kind of intervention, but still better than just letting your mind stew with greed or aversion or any unwholesome you know, pattern in your mind is to suppress it. It's like the Buddha uses the image in the same way that a strong person would grab a weaker person and pin them down, hold them down. Use your mind to crush the mind. You know, use your volition, your will. I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, we're not doing this anymore. And it's like when, it's the same thing when a parent basically says, I'm bigger than you. You know, you're not going to do that because I'm bigger than you. You know, this is not going to happen. And you pick the child up and you put them in the bedroom and you shut the door and you're not coming out until you calm down, right? And it's not a very good move for a parent to do that. 
But it might be the only move a parent has sometimes. Some of you, I'm not a parent, but some of you, I've been a school teacher and I've done the equivalent, you know, some things you can't do as a school teacher, but, but basically the equivalent move where you're using your power, your overwhelming power to say, no, this is not going to happen anymore. And of course, there are consequences to playing that card too often. But when nothing else works, it's still better to try that than to just be helpless with some unwholesome pattern that's literally causing hell and setting emotion hell in the future. Why would we surrender, submit to that? We should do whatever works, even if there's some shadow or some, uh, like some medicines, like chemotherapy, has a lot of negative consequences. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't use chemotherapy when we need it, right? So some of these spiritual moves or these psychological moves, emotional moves, they have consequences. But better than just letting our mind be swept away. So this is how the Buddha talks about um, protecting our mind, feeding and starving the mind. So when we're starving, we have these five ways of starving, right? To keep our mind from obsessing in unproductive ways, we can substitute in an opposite attitude. We can practice seeing what's getting set in motion and allow for a wholesome fear or concern to rise. Honey, I do not want to be that guy, right? We can ignore it. Find something that is so engaging for your mind that you're not going to keep doing what you're doing. Right? Something you can absorb into that's relatively wholesome. Take a hot bath. Call a friend. You know, whatever works. Go pet your dog. Go play with the dog. Actually, that's a nice diversion, right? Because it does two things. It's both bringing in the opposite quality of loving kindness and giving you an activity that the mind can absorb into. Then to investigate it. It's interesting how far down the list investigation is. We tend to want to go there right away to think about why I'm doing this. But try some of these others before you go there. But if you are going to investigate, then do it with real integrity, which means, from a Buddhist point of view, means you're interested in cause and effect. This, Whatever this obsessive state is, it's lawful. It's arising lawfully due to cause and effect. So, what is the mind seeing that is fueling this? So you're taking a step back. Or how did this get set in motion? What were the causes, supporting causes, to be so caught up like this? What happened? Oh yeah, there was this. This is what we do with kids too, isn't it? And it's like, well honey, what happened? What did you see? How did that make you feel? Right? We're basically training kids to do this, kind of a, this investigation with integrity. Like, oh, he was bad. Well, then you break it down. You help them deconstruct. Well, what do you mean when you say he was bad? What did he do? Why do you think he did that? I wonder what he saw, right? What were you doing that made him feel that way, that made him do that thing? And then he did, oh, and how did that make you feel? So you keep breaking. Why does that bother you so much? What would happen if you just, you know, so you keep tracing back? To get to the basic, 
problem, this existential problem, which is, I want to be in control, or I'm afraid. Right? There's some essential thing. And then, well, can that be okay? That's when we play, do that last thing. Well, oh, so you're a frightened animal. Well, can that be okay? Can you relax with that? Because being an insecure, vulnerable animal is kind of how it is for each of us. Right? It kind of comes with the territory of being a human being. So can that be okay? Can you live with that? Yeah, I guess I can. And then the last is to exert this force of will, you know, this strong parental energy, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. I'm not letting you know. No. It's like, you know, when we plug it, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. I mean, it's a very primitive, ineffective thing, but it kind of works when nothing else works, right? To just, like, be forceful about not doing it, whatever it takes. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice because we're all, I mean, we've been abandoning, doing our best to abandon negative, unwholesome states to the degree we recognize that they're not helpful. So what have we learned works and doesn't work? What questions do you have about this topic or just generally about effort and energy? Remember to point the mic right at your mouth so we can all hear you. What comes to mind? Anybody make effort? (laughs) Yes, please. You want to pass it? Woman in the hat. Um, What came to mind for me was just finding balance and integration of all these different aspects of who I am. Um, And just contentedness and how easy it is to want to run away from being content in order to create more problems is kind of like a self-defeatism or just an energetic pattern. Um, And being able to embrace whole self through integration of these different parts of who I am. Um, Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And you know, that that, uh, integration and that contentment that comes with acceptance... It's interesting how that's a wholesome quality, right? That can be developed and maintained. We'll talk about that next week. But that really supports the preventing and the abandoning. Because if you know what it feels like to be content, then when you've got the catalog and you're getting excited about something, then if the mind remembers the contentment, the need for that thing, whatever the heart desires, it weakens, it falls away. Because... The heart is already content, so the allure of that thing, it's like, it may be nice, but I don't need it. There are a lot of nice things, but if we're already feeling content, we don't have to struggle to have them. If they come our way, fine, but if they don't, the heart's already content. So there's a lot of immunity we get when we can find the actual experience of contentment. And one of the nice things of the second two efforts to develop and maintain wholesome states is we get very familiar, if we do this work, with wholesome states so that even when we've forgotten them, we can re-remember them. Like we're, we're not content, 
we're caught up in greed, and then we realize we're caught up in greed, and then the wisdom of the mind can go, remember that feeling of contentment? And then just the memory, the mind puts its attention on that memory of contentedness, and then that attention to the memory of contentedness causes the actual arising of contentedness here and now. And then we abide in that. And the mind is then liberated from that trap that we were about to fall into or that we had fallen into. Thanks so much for sharing that. Other thoughts that come to mind? What have you learned? What would you like to share from your practice or questions that you might have? Yeah, please. And if you don't mind, if you'd like, feel free to say your name. My name is Claire. Um, I was kind of mapping what you were saying um, against uh, a, something that happened to me earlier today. And, it, you know, it, it's great when I can do that because it, it makes even more sense. Um, so earlier today I was at the cabin, a family member's cabin, and my dog got out ran out the door. My partner was carrying stuff out to the car and she got out and she's super independent. So she's, you know, she's like a hunting dog, bred to be a hunting dog no longer. But, um, so she's gone, I mean, she's gone and she's young and she's a puppy and it's like, oh, it's, it's the worst when this happens. She was gone for three full hours. I mean, you, you could see her, like you could see her tail bobbing off in the distance. And it was really worrisome for me well, first, you know, we were going to miss all these things we had planned for the afternoon. We didn't know. You know, I don't know if we would be back tonight even. And then also there's a, a really busy road nearby, so I was just really worried that she was going to run out into the road and get hit and die. And so I'm Im- I immediately went into this really kind of really negative mood, and I was lashing out. I was blaming my partner because he had op- he was the one who opened the door. Of course, it was an accident, but... You know, I was just, like, hitting him with little jabs and why aren't you out there looking and, you know. And then my aunt, who was trying to change the subject and make me think of something else, I was just really rude to her, too, because I was just so worried and I, you know, I was taking it so personally that this had happened. So eventually, me and my partner went and we decided to just (laughs) open a beer and have some peanuts and sit and wait for her to come back that was like what all we could think to do eventually and we sat on a picnic blanket in the sun and of course then it kind of became this really nice afternoon and so first first (laughs) just like tracking back to what you were saying the, the strategies you mentioned first I became actually became kind of mindful like hey isn't this a beautiful day and here we are sitting on a picnic blanket and you know, she looks like she's having a lot of fun out there. <laughs> like, at least if she gets hit by a car, it'll be, she'll be so happy when she goes. <laughs> I actually said that. <laughs> and then, and then, and then I, um, I replay, I also like replaced, it occurred to me, you know, he probably felt pretty bad about it too, but I was so caught up in how I felt about it and how it was his fault. And so, and I actually said to him, because everyone's just worried she's going to get hit by a car, run out into the road. And I said, you know, I hope you know that if she gets hit 
and she dies, I wouldn't blame you for it. <laughs> Which is kind of extreme, maybe, like, that I should even have to say that. But I wanted to make sure he knew. And then he said, I'm actually kind of glad that I'm the one who let her out because I think if you had done it and she would have gotten hit, you would have taken it so personally and you would have blamed yourself for it. And I and I just had this moment of, like, you are just the best. <laughs> like, how can you... That's what you were thinking about, and here I was just spinning in my own, um, you know, making this so personal. And so I just, I don't know, th- those strategies, not not having really thought about the fact that I was using them, mm-hmm. really worked. Because then it was just like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's okay. And eventually she came back, and it, it was fine, and we came home. <laughs> so. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Claire. It's so good because, you know, we get these lists. Remember, there's so many lists in the Buddhist, Buddhist tradition because it was an oral tradition for a while, so it always feels a little compulsive and analytical, but it's not. It's really common sense. That's really how it's meant to be. So we need to take these teachings and then notice how the mind is already using them, but now to use it consciously. Then, then we'll get really good at the strategies when we know that they actually work because we paid attention and we've correlated, basically. Oh, yeah, that, that was a helpful way to do it. And the other interesting thing in Claire's comment is, because we know this in hindsight, but we always forget it, how dysfunctional worry is. Like Being really tight in no way increased the probability of the dog coming back. It was completely worthless suffering. I mean, it's totally understandable that we get tight in those kind of situations. So we don't want to get tight and judge ourselves for being tight. But we can recognize in a moment how completely dysfunctional it is. Being tight just makes us tight. It doesn't solve a problem that that might need to be solved. Thanks, Claire. And maybe time for one more person, if there's somebody else who'd like to share something that you've been learning. Yes, please. You want to pass it to the back? Hi, I'm Leah. I'll bring a little bit different perspective to it. I spent a lot of the time thinking, how would this ever work in my situation? Um, And certain examples that came up for me is when I run into those situations, you know, you get really wound up in your head, and you actually gain energy. It feels like I'm gaining energy, like I'm on adrenaline rush. And sometimes that's a great thing for me. I feel like I have energy, and I'm going to do something. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to change the world because I'm so obsessed about it. So I was having a little bit harder time trying to understand how just dropping it, pulling it out of the situation, doing something different is going to help my situation when I felt much better actually feeling like I was obsessed about it, that I was going to gain some traction, figure it out and fix it. So right. I, I guess I was having some challenge with it. I understand where you're going with, but I No, no, see it's, a, it's a really good side. point. Because on the surface, there is a lot of energy in these obsessive patterns. We wouldn't do them. We w- wouldn't fall into those habits if there wasn't some hook or some bait. And that's the bait, is when we have a strong desire, a strong fear, uh, Basically, some self-organizing thing like fear, anger, greed, hope. It uh, organizes the energy in the heart and mind. And we do feel more alive. 
But we have to, uh, and it's not so easy, but we have to take in the whole trajectory, like the crash that always inevitably comes from energy that arises because of that contraction, because of that hyper-focus on whatever you know it is that we're focused on. And the other thing, so we have to see the whole package, that the crash and burn part of it. And then the other thing is we have to realize that there's a lot of energy and love and compassion. So we can engage life in a very forceful, strong way, but not with greed or aversion, but with because we care, real love. But it's much more stable. Like you can sustain love and compassion for a lot longer than you can sustain anger or greed. You know, the heart gets burnt out and will crash. But love will carry you for the long haul because it it's sort of self-regenerates love. It just keeps on delivering. So in the Buddhist tradition, we call them immeasurables. It's like we're tapping into an energy that doesn't run out. Like if you have real compassion or real concern born out of compassion, a real strong sense of kindness or a real powerful sense of appreciation, the more you tap into it, it doesn't get weaker. It actually gets stronger. So that's what I would do is, on the one hand, notice that even though you do get some energy, what's the consequence of relying on that energy? It kind of burns itself out, like, and you end up that hollow feeling, right? And then... Other times when you feel like you're energized, your energy is coming from a more wholesome place, one of the beautiful qualities, sense of appreciation or gratitude, strong sense of compassion, wanting to protect, wanting to take care of, then notice the stability and the depth of that kind of energy. It's like so much more trustworthy than a more frenetic, whipped up kind of energy. But it's, it's uh, easy to go for the easy stuff, you know, because we can whip up self-righteousness pretty quick. The ingredients are all around us. The society sort of is vibrating with it. So it's easy to tap into that. And then we're, we're constantly needing more of the whipped up stuff because it runs dry very quickly. You know, so we have to keep going to the, the anger or the possibility, the greed, to kind of keep the energy alive. And that's where it gets addictive, right? So it's the same like with drugs. You know, you can get a lot of energy from drugs, but eventually you burn out, you fry out. So it's the same with these psychological patterns too. They kind of eat the heart out. And a lot of times we can see it in other people. Like it's not so easy when we're caught but we see what happened to other people. We see what is happening to other people and how it's not really working. And then we see other people who have been able to do really amazing things in the world but not get burnt out. So how did that happen? Where did their energy come from? What was their attitude that sustained them? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's a really good point, Leah. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths.
Just noticing how it feels, this heart, this body and mind. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.